Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel within the New Books Network. I am your host, Adam McNeil. Today on the podcast, we're chatting with two distinguished scholars of slavery, Dr. Dinah Ramey Berry, the Oliver H. Radke Regents Professor of History and African and African Diaspora Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. And we also have Dr. Leslie M. Harris, Professor of History at Northwestern University. We're sitting in discussion about their phenomenal new edited volume published by our friends at the University of Georgia Press entitled Sexuality and Slavery, Reclaiming Intimate Histories in the Americas. Hello, doctors. How are y'all doing this afternoon? Great. Thank you. Good. Thanks for having us. Yes, absolutely. And, and I like, like I talked to y'all offline, um, just super duper excited. And I hope my Twitter uh, feed has been uh, a show of that over the host of the, the last couple months. I was definitely happy to, to get your, to get the edited volume. And, um, after discussing with, with some of the scholars, even within the edited volume, I know that, um, this was not only a project of love, but it was, it was a hard, you know, it, it was, it was a lot to, to, to do. So, um, thank y'all for that. And so before we go directly into the text, can, can you talk to us about how the project really began? The, yes, the project first started off with Leslie and I co-hosting a conference under the same title, Sexuality and Slavery, at the University of Texas at Austin in the fall of 2011. And that conference was where we sort of wanted to talk about how we bring scholars together to talk about issues of sexuality and slavery. It was a conference that was open to the public. I think we had about 300 people in attendance um, that registered. And we also had, as Leslie and I, one of our highlights was that we had local high school students that came and participated in the conference. And we joke and about it then, and we still talk about it today, how they asked some of the best questions that we had throughout the two days that we met. I think we were really surprised to have 300 people sign up, register for the conference. We had really envisioned it as a kind of working group. We knew a number of scholars who had been working on these questions and we wanted to bring them together. And 
we didn't expect the conference to be so public, but it was really wonderful to have an amazing audience, including these high school students who were very much wanting to make the connection between the history and their current experiences and understandings as young women um, around the ways that sexuality and race uh, were reverberating in American culture. And and I really asked that too because um I, I I loved you know reading the stories um you know the the different contributors and such within the volume and their different um areas of expertise and um were all of the contributors actually at that actual conference? We had some we had um, some contributors who their work went into other um, volumes. For example, Tara Hunter's wonderful new book um, on. Uh, um, African-Americans and marriage in the 19th century. She presented at the conference and her amazing book is out. Um, Jennifer Morgan, um, uh, her work is um, coming forthcoming in a, a different venue. Um, so we had uh, some essays that uh, remain part of the volume. And then we learned of other people who were doing work um, that we brought in. So my colleague, Bianca Primo, who um, contributed an essay on uh, love and the law and intimacy in Peru. And so we, uh, she mentioned that she was working on this, and I thought it would be a great fit for the volume. Um, Brenda Stevenson's published essay, Brenda was a, uh, advisee, uh, an advisor, uh, was Dinah's dissertation advisor, and she had written this great essay on, on concubinage. And so we asked if we could reprint that. So it really... As um, after the conference, and we also did at the year after the conference, we did a, a closed workshop with many of the writers. But then we heard about other works that we thought would be a good fit for the volume. And I think one of the most special contributions for both of us is to have the work of Stephanie Camp open the volume. Um, she passed away a little bit before we were having this conference, and. Um, she was working on some work on beauty and beauty, and we thought we were approached by uh, Sharon Block at the UC Irvine, who had been in a touch with the people at the estate, and they were happy to allow us to work with Dr. Block on republishing, or actually publishing for the first time, this wonderful essay that we used to open the volume. And that was a very special piece for both of us. And it's really, you know, pathbreaking. Um in terms of what she's exploring and how ideas of beauty during and after the slave trade impacted um, women of African descent. Yeah. And, 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 you know, as someone who, um, you know, I've really began, you know, studying, I would say slavery right in my master's program um, in 2015. So that would have been, you know, the year um, after Dr. Camp's um, uh, untimely death. And so, you know, I, I then, you know, I had, you know, uh, mentors and such who um, anytime I, I talk to them about, you know, my interest in slavery and, and notions of resistance and such, they would always go back to her work. So it's it's a it's interesting for me to really read a lot of the texts that have come out um, uh, and, and many of the contributors being being those uh, involved in those works where it's almost like I'm learning about her um in 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 such a way through the people that knew her and not just in, in in the books that she's written um so so i think that it's um it's it's a very uh, a unique uh, uh kind of position too um and, and her work is obviously you know monumental and as y'all said is a great way to open 
on the volume two because you know she she's done so much and it's really uh, so so awesome to be able to read text and actually see kind of where the conversations were being had um, with uh, with Dr. Camp's work and so um, so I definitely thought that that was that was an outstanding um, bit uh, of work that y'all were able to to work to to get into the volume here. We also made it a point to not do much copy editing to the work. This was a work in progress piece of hers um, from a larger book project. And we really worked well with Dr. Block about not changing too much of what was said. So we did minor copy editing to it. So the work is really her work. You know, it's not that we went back and changed it to match the rest of the volume. We really wanted it to speak for itself. And I think it did. Most definitely. Um, And so, you know, going, um, further into the book can, can y'all talk about uh because for, like i said you know for someone who you know began really studying slavery in like 2015 it just seems like sexuality has for for my very obviously relatively short sample size of life in this in this area it seemed just you know just normal to that sexuality and slavery is just there um but but obviously from reading um, various areas of, of the volume, that definitely is not the case. So can y'all talk about um, really why y'all b- uh, believe that uh, uh, sexuality, uh, uh, sexual, really sexual practices have been marginalized in, in, in the mainstream uh, uh, scholarship of slavery? I think, you know, studying sexuality in history generally is a fairly recent uh, practice um, for most of the 20th century historians didn't um, address sexuality as a human practice that has a history. Um, So that uh, in all history, that that's a fairly recent um, event. And then with the history of slavery, of course, there's a lot of uh, stereotyping, shame. Um, I would say there's even sort of unconscious, if you will, histories of sexuality. So even if, uh, the very earliest uh, people like U.B. Phillips, the very earliest historians of slavery, did talk about what they perceived as sexual practices among enslaved people. But of course, those were uh, completely clouded and stereotyped um, in their belief that, you know, uh, black women were lascivious, black men were um, just this side of rapists, if not actual rapists. Um, they, some of these histories, uh, describe uh, the fecundity, the alleged fecundity of enslaved women, even though now we know that the physical pressures um, as laborers and the lack of nutrition probably meant that these uh, women and men uh, may have had lower birth rates than normal. Um, So, but all of that, um, there was a sort of uh, a way that uh, histories of sexuality in slave communities were created not to get at the truth of what was going on in enslaved people's intimate lives, but to reinforce negative stereotypes. And then, of course, the biggest thing that was often ignored, hidden, um, not discussed honestly, was the abuse of enslaved people, the sexual abuse of enslaved people, the fact that owners, um, uh, of course, the, the rape of enslaved people by owners and the rape of men and women, this is not just uh, something that happened to women, but also the ways in which the interventions of slave masters in the lives of enslaved people, um, the idea that uh, in, uh, slave owners wanted slaves to reproduce because that directly 
uh, increase their wealth. So the more children, um, especially in the U.S., the more children that um, enslaved people had, that increased the wealth of the owner. So there, there's a lot of shame, a lot of, uh, frankly, lies <laughs> about the history. And it really is only in the late 20th and now into the 21st century that people are really beginning to uh, look at this history more, trying to be more honest about it, having learned, you know, how, you know, the kinds of negative stereotypes, the racism, how that impacted much of the history of black people in the 20th century. Now people are really trying to be more honest and understand beyond the racist stereotypes, what was going on? What were these relationships? And I want to say too, that this is, these are, you know, there's of course a very negative history um, that needs to be addressed. The way that sexuality is a tool of power um, but there's also a need to recover the intimate lives of enslaved people and the ways in which they try to reclaim their own intimacy. And this is something actually just thinking about Stephanie Camp's work that, of course, she does so well in her um, essay, The Pleasures of Resistance. And so this work, I think, in really interesting ways, builds on that. How, in what ways, when and how was it possible for enslaved people to claim their own bodies, their own emotion, their own sexual expression, and to make that something that was theirs. In thinking about the book as a whole, I think we wanted more of that, and we're still, as historians, struggling to address that in a way. But I think there are moments in the text when we are able to explore those issues. Um, but I do think the book still as a whole, probably mo- a lot of the book is still about uh, the ways in which uh, sexual expression was distorted by um, the system of slavery, that the power uh, structure of slavery uh, really uh, forced enslaved people to do things that they may not have wanted to do. It comes out in the two essays by Tom Foster, who we added at a later time. Stephanie Jones Rogers, who explores the work of, of how enslaved people viewed their enslaved mistresses or their, their the plantation wives who were their owners. So she writes about that and, and looks at how Black women were being commodified and how they experienced that at the hands of white slaveholding women and some of the abuse, the physical abuse they experienced, whereas Foster's reprinted essay looks at the sexual abuse of enslaved men. So those are two spaces where we saw that. And, and it's true. I, I would add to what Leslie was saying is that we really did want to want to have more on um, other forms of intimacy that were not just abuse. And that's one of the places where I think if we're looking at future directions in slavery scholarship, um, that's one of the directions that I think we'll, we'll see more people doing work in that area. And, and, and yeah, like I, I've, I was just so taken aback, not only at like how expansive um, the areas of, uh, of sexuality and in- intimacy um, were taken up in the volume, but also uh, the geographic space as well, right? Because you have, you know, um, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Bianca, uh, Correct me if I'm 
butchering the last name uh primo um with her um with her con- contribution chapter four uh as if she were my own love and law in the slave society of 18th century peru and 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 you know so you know peru we have you know barbados we have you know not just um you know what is now the United States, but also areas within the, um, within the Atlantic world, within, um, within the overall, as your, as the, um, as the title goes, obviously in the Americas. Um, because I think that what it does is that it, you know, not only expands our, you know, sense of, of sexuality and, and, and slavery, but also, you know, the, the geographic molding, I think was just so, uh, was just so tremendous, um, as well. And so kudos to y'all on that. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and, and, and also, you know, I was also thinking, um, as I was coming up, uh, with, you know, the, the framing questions for today, um, when this project was in its infancy in comparison to the finished product, um, you know, how, if at all, has the project even changed? Um, because I'm, because I, you know, I'm sure, you know, y'all have written, you know, y'all have written a lot, <laughs> a, a whole lot. And some of the things I've even bought, you know, I bought from my mother. Um, she loves to read uh, what I'm reading too. And I'm sure that there have been times where you've begun a project and it changes dramatically um over the course of time and so is this edited volume to a certain degree also uh from the infancy to uh the finished product any different from kind of how uh, you thought about it back you know in earlier in the decade i think it evolves most most of the evolution came because we had different people participating in the volume and people that were at the conference, as Leslie was mentioning earlier, who whose work actually went elsewhere, whether it was in, into a book or into an article. So that was one of the places. And, and we also wanted to maintain a balance so that we had, it was the Americas, that it wasn't just the United States. Um, I think, you know, if we were to look back, uh, we'd probably want uh, French, uh, French-speaking Caribbean. We didn't have that in there. Um, there's other parts of Latin America besides Peru that we could have we could have included. So I think if we were to, to do it again, I think we would try to have a broader a broader breadth than we have currently. Um, but because of that, as different people um, dropped off or decided to go elsewhere with their work, um, including Leslie and myself, we both had pieces that we presented at the conference that we decided not to put in the volume. We decided to just wear editors' hats or the volume and leave the editor and writer um, sides of ourselves out. Um, And so I think with that, we were going back over how to shape the volume and make sure that it still had a cohesive group of essays um, that it would, it would warrant the title that we have. And I think that's one, one um, area where it changed over time. And and as also as as, um, Professor Harris mentioned, we had that workshop about a year later where we were workshopping the papers um, so we, so even when they came to UT Austin for the first meeting that we had, we had pre-circulated papers. So it was really a working conference. People spent a few minutes. I don't know if we even did a full presentation of the papers. Um, let, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we spoke for maybe 15 to 30 minutes and then we had conversation. So that's what I think was great about the conference in and of itself was that we had a lot of dialogue about the work that we were doing. And then we came back a year later with revisions and met um, at CUNY Graduate Center and NYU. And we did work there for that closed meeting to really get the volume ready. Dr. To, Harris, to uh, did you have something as well? 
No, I was looking at the table of contents and I, I think that um, it, it is a mix of people who were at the conference and then people who um, weren't. And uh, it's probably almost 50, 50 uh, in terms of that. Um, so I think that's probably where uh, some of the growth uh, and changes in the volume happened was um, that, that mix of people. But it also, you know, um, it just really also reflects that change reflects the dynamism of the field right now. Um, I'm preparing right now to teach a graduate course in African-American history. And I think one of the uh, most dynamic areas um, to try to capture in a week or two in the course is the history of slavery, gender, and sexuality. There's been a real explosion of material um, and um, it's, uh, really hard to contain it all. You know, uh, I could probably now do a whole course just on that topic, um, which 10 years ago would not have been the case. I don't think I would not have had enough material, but I, you know, I feel like our volume is slipping in, in a moment when there are a lot of monographs, articles, and new work that's going to appear some from, the very authors we have. Stephanie Jones Rogers' book is coming out this year. Tom Foster's book is coming out. Um, uh, uh, Marisa Fuentes' book has already come out. There are just a lot of works that either substantially are talking about issues of sexuality or the whole topic of the book is around slavery and sexuality. And that's a major shift in the field um, right now. That shift is forcing people to rethink, I hope, what is possible to talk about. One of the other reasons why this history was under-investigated early on is that um, many people either distrusted or, uh, or didn't believe that there were sources um, available to discuss these kinds of intimate histories. And Dinah has heard me say this probably too many times, but um, I really think that Scholars, historians have not exhausted the archives in terms of what we can say. We often, particularly African-American historians, historians of African-Americans often lament the lack in the archive. But um, I think we have to stop assuming that there's a perfect archive out there and work with what we have, interrogate it, use, you know, methodologies, sometimes take some risks in our interpretations um, and write the histories we need. Um, certainly Marisa Fuentes is a sterling example of someone who did that, um, right, and who takes on, you know, the idea of the archive, but doesn't let that, you know, stop her from writing amazing history. I think Tom Foster's forthcoming work um, uh, on the sexual abuse of enslaved men will be eye-opening to many people. What he was able to find, not only in written archives, but in visual culture as well. And um, I think we're really entering a moment of uh, uh, real expansion in the field of slavery studies generally, but particularly in terms of these intimate histories. Right. And, and yeah, you know, the... This 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 field and and you know I I listened and well I guess listen and watch um, Dr. Harris you were on a panel um, was it about I guess now almost two years ago 
that was at the Schomburg, and it was you, uh, Dr. Christopher Leslie Brown, and uh, Dr. Uh, Sinha, and a host of others, if I'm not mistaken, were, were, were speaking um, uh, about the field of, uh, of slavery. And, um, you know, it's on the shot for, for those who are not aware, you, you know, the Schomburg has a phenomenal live stream archive that you can just like go back, I think over the course of four years and see various, uh, discussions. And, um, uh, Dr. Harris was, was, was uh, on one of them. And it was just so eye opening to, to listen to folks who have been around in the field for good amount of time and who've been who've written so much and yet yet and still it's so beautiful to hear folks like yourself say like there's still more to do um and and also i thought that it was interesting that dr harris you brought up the notion of risk um because i think the notion of risk especially tied to um as a graduate student right i'm a graduate student so the notion of risk is is something that i'm kind of like ooh that I, I like it, but I'm also thinking like, you know, as someone who wants to go into academia, kind of like, you know, that, you know, there's a risk of doing that risk. And so um, I'm thinking as well in how pretty much most, if not all of the um, the the contributors, they're folks who have graduate students. And so when I'm thinking about the notion of risk, I'm thinking that, hmm, they might also, you know, be you know, cool with, you know, a, a, a tad, you know, just, just a teensy wince of, of risk taking at um, the, the graduate level as folks who were, you know, making these interpretations of these sources and, uh, and such. And so I think that that notion of risk is just very, very interesting. Well, even if you look at the table of contents, many of the people we have, this is, you know, the essays are out of their first book, Stephanie Jones Rogers, first book, Jessica Millward, first book, uh, David Doddington, first book. Uh, let's see, and Marissa Fuentes, you know, and so um, that's almost half of the people in the volume. Um, and then we also had, you know, people at the conference and um, it, you know, as a, for graduate students, it is, uh, can be, of course, more risky. You have to have a committee or mentors who can help you navigate um, what can be sometimes very complex, uh, conceptual, interpretive, and methodological issues in the work. Um, it is wonderful if you have mentors, if your dissertation committee are very experienced in that. But of course, you know, there's small, there have been in the past small numbers of people who have been doing this work. Um, so again, not to say that it's without risk at all. You, you know, the individual scholar, graduate student, or even more senior scholar has to mediate between uh, well-meant, perhaps well-intentioned critiques and their own sense, growing sense, developing, learning sense of what the archives, what they're seeing in the archives. So sometimes it's very difficult. You feel very alone. Um, I think um, that's probably the hardest thing for someone producing new scholarship of any kind is to realize that at a cert- at certain moments in your career, you are the only one who's seen a particular set of sources. You are the only one who has been walking that path through multiple archives. And you have to then convince readers of your interpretation of what that is. That's true for everyone. Um, and so, but for this field, definitely for the uh, field of sexuality studies, it can be feel more risky, and particularly in this 
growing field, but still kind of a new field. Um, so, you know, it's not without risk, but I, I do think the rewards can be great. One thing that people can do also is um, to try, you know, presenting the work at conferences, trying to reach out to scholars beyond your institution if they have time, which isn't always the case. We always want to do more. Absolutely. But that's another way to sort of test out your ideas or even to find peers who will read with you and help you develop the work. I think it's really important. That's why I think workshopping is, is important. Because you can have that space, as Dr. Harris is saying, to to try out sort of to see if it if the way you're the line of thinking that you're you're presenting is convincing um, that you have supported some of it or most of it with archival or artistic or poetic or multiple disciplinary sources, um, but that it's still convincing and it holds together. And I think that part of that is really that risk-taking that, that we're talking about is something I think is really common for, in particular, slavery studies, um, because we're, we're looking at an archive that is relying mostly on the words of people who talk about enslaved people in passing or talk about them directly, but we're not always having it from their first person voice. Now that's, that's to say, you know, that's putting the narratives aside. Um, And I think we've seen this with this, with this volume and with the conversations that came out of the workshop and the symposium was that we really talked about ways to unearth this archive and to talk about spaces where there were silences and to talk about places where, um, not the, the entire story wasn't told, but we felt like there was something else going on. And one way to do that would be to, to do some speculative, you know, some speculative writing, um, asking questions of the writing that you're doing so that the reader sees your line of thinking and understands that you're not just trying to make, to jump to this conclusion, but you're showing that this is something that you're considering. And I think those are, that's where, that's where we landed. I think uh, one of the spaces we landed with this conference um, and with this volume was how do we have these conversations about sexuality and not just look at abuse, but look at intimacy, um, look at look at same sex love relations if we can find them, look at friendships, look at other forms of connections that people are having, and that was really what we were trying to do. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off and 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 very well because i know that leading up to the publication of uh sexuality and slavery i could tell just from twitter that the field was waiting you know not just the people you know that were contributors or yourselves there are a lot of people who are ready and waiting to 
um, to, to take in this work. And I remember uh, coming back from Asala. Uh, was it Asala? It was, it, was, it was a conference at the end of the semester. There, there were a lot. But I remember reading, um, reading the text almost in one sitting while on a plane going back to uh, going back to Baltimore and just thinking like, oh, my gosh, there's just so much to digest that I just need much more time than the three hours or whatever that I that was in the air. And and that's just because there's so much depth um, to 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 the work and, you know, the the final um, contribution that. I just highlighted just a, a, a crap ton was uh, uh, was Jim Downs. You know, Dr. Jim Downs is, you know, when the president is passed, writing the history of sexuality and slavery, I was just like, just just highlight, 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 like, oh my gosh, just so much to take in um, that it, it's, it's just one of those uh, uh, page, not page, not only page turners, but, uh, you know, trendsetters, field shakers. Um, that I think that a lot of people are going to, you know, we're going to start seeing a lot of uh, a lot of work that's going to be done that is going to really be citing um, this particular um, text as well. And and as editors, you know, y'all 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 should take definitely some pride in that too. Well, that's great to hear. Um, I do think that you know we were in the right place at the right time to some degree, and. Um, able to bring together this incredible group of scholars um, and their work. You know, the essays in many cases are part of larger bodies of work that they're creating. And, and I, I totally agree with you. I think it really is going to keep developing in that way and provide paths for other scholars to continue the work. And and also an, another question I have for y'all, um, you know, y- y- y'all, y'all had mentioned that um, you know, you provided papers uh, that that could have been included, but you know, you just took the, the editorial role um, on full force. But did y'all, you know, after reading each contribution, you know, and and I'm sure y'all know uh, the, the scholars that are involved in this and their work beforehand. Um, what what did y'all learn? Um, I'm really interested to know what, what y'all learned after reading, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the essays that are involved in sexuality and slavery, because, uh, you know, I'm sure y'all have gotten for a very long time from people who are not in, you know, involved in the study of, you know, slavery or just historians in general, people think that, you know, when someone says that they're a historian, that they're a historian of everything, uh, but, you know, you don't know everything and, and, you know, and, and, and Lord knows, uh, most people don't in any, any venture. So, um, what did, what did y'all learn after reading, you know, through all of these, uh, all the different essays involved? I think for me, um, I learned about, from Stephanie Camp's essay, um, a very important piece that I think is, is, is field, shape, uh, field changing, and that is the notion that um, some, some European um, travelers and individuals saw Black women as beautiful. Um, not necessarily just over-sexualized, but like, you know, we see that we see and have seen so much literature where the where you see European, you know, 16th, 17th, sometimes 18th century writers um, talking about black people in ways that is um, 
you know, connecting them to animals and all kinds of things. But to see the care that she took with with going into the archives and looking at some of the literature to see how they're talking specifically about about black women as being beautiful. I thought that was I thought that was something that was important um, and field shaping to me. Um, I also was really I welcomed learning about legislation like the womb laws that Dr. Millwood wrote about um, and the petitions that black women in early Maryland in Maryland history um, in her essay. And that was really that was um, some important legislation that really went along with um, the work of Jennifer Morgans, who's now the essay that she gave, presented there is part of an article called Part of Secular Ventrum, um, which came out in small acts about a year ago. Um, and so that really, I think the two of them were in conversation at the conference. And um, so I learned a lot about thinking about Partis from the conference and then thinking about Jessica Millward's um, womb legislation. That was something that was that was very, very um, sort of for me, it made me think in a detailed way of, of legislation that I had talked about in passing, talked about in class, lectured about but hadn't really gone into the level of depth that, that they did in both of their pieces. So that was really helpful for me. And then the final thing I'll say is, um, is the work of um, Stephanie Jones Rogers and Thomas Foster uh, and Brandis, I mean, pretty much everybody in here, even Bianca Primo's essay was, was, was to me foundational. Um, but it's just made me thinking, it makes me think about how to talk about relations and interactions and to leave space for multiple interpretations of those. I would agree with all of those. Stephanie Camp's article in particular, um, giving us another win- window into relationships um, between uh, white men and black women. Um, Stephanie Jones Rogers, you know, one of our uh, champions for this volume was Catherine Clinton, who wrote, you know, the foundation of the plantation mistress a long time ago, I guess it came out in, was it 84 maybe? And so I feel like Stephanie Jones Rogers is really picking up that work and taking it forward in terms of her larger book, which is on women, female slave owners. Um, But her um, essay for the volume really talks about how white women are implicated in particular kinds of ways in the, in the sexual abuse of black women. And um, I think that that's a really uh, important thing to understand that white women, uh, it's very difficult for people to understand women as wielders of power, as physical abusers or as implicated in physical abuse. And so uh, Catherine Clinton tried to do that. Uh, make that she made that intervention a long time ago, and Stephanie Jones Rogers is coming back and picking that up and expanding it even further. Um, on the other end of the spectrum is, I think, Bianca Primo's work, um, which is partly a legal history of how the law constructs the possibility for affection between owners and slaves. Of course, that's a very fraught territory for U.S. historians of slavery. It's very interesting to see a similar conversation happening in Spanish America, and I wonder if that will help us think about uh, similar kinds of relationships in other parts of the Americas. So I think it's a really thoughtful article. It also forces us to question our contemporary, current-day understandings of love as somehow removed from power relationships. And I think one of the overarching questions that I get from the volume is the way that 
intimate power works, how love is not, does not necessarily mean there isn't a power dynamic. Um, what does that mean in our own relationships? Um, you know, love is not, love is and is not transhistorical, right? And, uh, but today we seem to have an ideology around love and marriage um, that uh, uses romance as a way to avoid or excuse or dismiss conversations about very real power dynamics and, and frankly, very real abuse within intimate relationships at times. And I think that all of these essays, in a way, have to force us to ask about um, power dynamics within relationships, even if both sides agree to those power dynamics, agree that one person's in charge and another person is subordinate. And then, of course, the abuse of power dynamics and and a larger question of vulnerability um, that is uh, always, in a way, part of intimacy. So, um, again, that vulnerability, of course, is often abused in the slave system. And yet there's a piece of intimacy that's reflected in these essays that is also a fraught area in current day relationships. So that's kind of meta, but <laughs> I do think. Hey, we'll, we'll take it. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, you know, I, I love that because it just, um, you know, yeah, yes. You, you know, you, you, you went meta there. Uh, but I, I think that the, the listeners, uh, the, the overall listening audience uh, would, would definitely agree that, you know, both of you just described uh, tremendously, you know, a number of different ways that, you know, your contributors just, you know, just, you know, just had, you know, had these incisions into the field, into the body of slavery scholarship um, to really, you know, get at where we need to go. And, um, you know, they are, they're, they're helping to lead uh, the way along with uh, both, both you, uh, Dr. Dr. Harris and Dr. Barry. Um, and it, and it also makes me think, um, uh, going back to, uh, Dr. Downs, and I guess this is going to be my, uh, uh, quick illustration of what, what I've really learned a lot too, was, um, you know, thinking about the notion of creativity, um, as a scholar, when it, there's a particular part in um, Dr. Downs's uh, part we, uh, contribution where he says, uh, and I quote, what if instead historians held the source in their hands, not as a scientist, but instead as an artist? Handling the source in this way does not mean one should not be analytical or critical. Um, it simply means analyzing the document for all its potential interpretive value. And he you know, talked about for, uh, uh, writers like Toni Morrison and Carol Walker and, and how they've written on the experience of enslaved people. And also he ended, um, you know, the, the, his area talking about how, um, uh, where's it, you know, if historians do not th- rethink their craft, the more likely it is that those in the arts become the official narrators of the past. Um, and, you know, I thought that was a really interesting point, both of those put together because what it made me think about was how uh, I don't think about what I do as creative, mm-hmm. but in large ways it is 
right? When I think about creativity, I think about like, you know, the visual artists. I think about people like my little brother who likes to draw. I think about people, you know, in, in everything but what we do. But that is not actually true. What we have to do, especially uh, uh, Dr. Barry talked to before about, um, you know, what it means to really be a scholar of slavery is that you're writing, you know, you're, 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 you're interpreting using uh, quote unquote, you know, small or, or, or you, know, le- you know, less amounts of, of, of fra- fragments. There we go. Fragments, uh, fragmented evidence. Um, and, and I told, uh, Dr. Fuentes, uh, at, at Asala, I was like, you know, I, I said, and actually, no, uh, Dr. Barry, you were there because you tweeted it actually, <laughs> because I said that, you know, your, your book is really, uh, uh, the manual of how to go into an archive. Um, so if someone on Twitter asks, what do I need to do to study, uh, enslaved women in, in the archive, go get her book and read that. And then hopefully you can go then, um, because I think that, you know, what it does is that it allows folks to better understand um, how to kind of take the weight off, uh, you know, you know, unyoke yourself from the weight um, and to think of yourself as someone who's in a creative space. And so, at least for me, that makes it I wouldn't necessarily say fun. Fun might not be the word, but something more in the middle, um, I, I, w- I would say. I think we are creative. I think we. I think it's a. I think being for me, being a historian, um, I treat the work that I produce, it, whether it's edited work with Leslie, because we've done more than one piece together, more than one book together. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think it's a, there is a creative process that comes with it, like even deciding the structure of the volume to decide which essays will come first and second, and how we bring those together. The writing an introduction of an edited volume of very, very diverse topics that that involves creativity. But even in my own writing, um, I think I think of it as a craft, and I think of, of fine tuning it, and you know, using all the tools that I have um, um, in my palette, you know, to write the, the work that I write. Um, so I I see it as as a form of of written art um if you will and i and because i was trained interdisciplinary though although i am i can i can use the model of a traditional historian and use you know evidence that are that's in archives but i can also use an archaeological site report or a play that was that was um, performed at the same time to help me inform the way in which people were thinking in that moment um, to uh, an artist's work who drew about a scene that was described by by um, a visitor or a traveler. So all of that all of that interdisciplinary work work um, contributes to the way I think about history and the way I write about history. So I do think we are. Um, Creative. I think one of the challenges that we have that I think Downs address and that, that I know Dr. Harris and I have talked about both on, on the record and off the record is just the notion of, um, you know, when we feel like we don't have enough evidence to say what we want to say, we can, how, do, how else do we then bring up the points that we're trying to make? And sometimes we do that by asking questions to get to the questions that we cannot answer, but also um, really interrogating the archival records that we have and trying to leave space for, for, for unanswered questions, because that also is part of our narratives at some times. I also want to mention, although she's not in our volume, but um, Taya Miles' uh, first book, The Ties, Ties That Bind, 
which as an interdisciplinary scholar, yes. I mean, her source base for her includes Toni Morrison. Um, I loved assigning that book when it first came out in graduate classes because I got the range of responses. I mean, people were like, how could she use fiction as a source to talk about the past? And um, we had a lot of intense conversations about what it meant for an historian, even an interdisciplinarily based historian, to cite Toni Morrison as evidence for what, a, you know, Toni Morrison 1987 for evidence of what someone was thinking in 1837. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, I still think about that. And that is a beautifully written book, you know. There are a handful of historians who, when I read their work, I cry. And she, her work is, uh, her second book was a book that literally, you know, made me weep a little bit just because of the way, the care with which she handled the material. Um, Occasionally I've been to talks that people give where the care with which they're handling people's lives and the creativity. So it's about creativity, but it's also about a kind of sensitivity um, to the fact that these are living human beings or were living human beings, that these lives matter. And hearing that and being in watching an historian really be in touch with that reality can be a very powerful and moving thing in the same way that other artists allow themselves that possibility as well. Not only allow themselves that possibility, but see it as central to their mission. And it certainly should be central to our mission as historians to invoke emotion, to invoke, to evoke emotion, to be sensitive to the people whose lives we're telling. And, and yeah, you know, that, that, that's so, that's so real. That is so real. And, 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 you know, it's why, you know, you know, you brought up the, the teaching moment and it's actually a great transition into uh, one of my final questions, which, you know, I, I brought up how, um, you know, I, I know uh, of students who have been taught by, by both of you and, and they speak glowingly uh, of both of y'all, not only as scholars, but, you know, um, but as teachers too, which, um, as I have found out that, you know, if you're a great scholar, I don't automatically mean you're a great teacher. Um, you know, you know, just, just, just going to put that out there. Um, but, um, you know, when I think about this work, I also think about how it applies to folks, you know, I brought up, uh, offline how I'm very, very interested in how people can apply, um, phenomenal scholarship into the classroom. And um, so can, can y'all talk briefly about how uh, you um, in, envision this, this volume contributing not only to uh, colleges and university classrooms, but even, you know, uh, high school classrooms as well? Uh, because, you know, it's, it, both of y'all are in interesting uh, areas. You know, Dr. Harris, you are um, in Illinois um, at Northwestern and Dr. Barry, you are in, uh, in the state of Texas. Um, and so, you know, I think the, the notion of, you know, high schools and, 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 um, and uh, contributing to those dis- discussions, I think, are ones where y'all are very much uh, 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 capable of people to talk about that particular question. Well, I would say um, this sort of brings us back to what we began with in the in the conversation when we were talking about the conference that this this volume um, came out of, and that was that the fact that there was a local high school teacher from a local school district here in Austin, Texas, who brought you know a group of her students. Um, Leslie and I have a picture 
after the conference that we took with these students. Um, and the students were very engaged. And this was not material. This was, These were, I think, um, eighth grade students or ninth grade students. And they were very engaged with the history. They had been studying some about slavery. And they were really wanting to have the kind of conversations that we had at the conference. So um, I would say that's that's one place for me to think about it in a K through 12 setting. Um, I also just this past fall um, spoke in Dr. Jessica Marie Johnson's class at Johns Hopkins. It was a graduate course, um, but they had read the volume and I, they, I Skyped into their class and we had all kinds of conversations and a lot of them were around methods. A lot of them were around the methodology of writing about slavery, of uncovering the history of sexuality and of taking risks. A lot of the same topics that we've discussed here today are the same kinds of conversations that we had with a doctoral class at Johns Hopkins. I'm thinking about how I'm going to integrate this volume in particular and some of the essays and the material that's emerging right now into the survey, which I think is the place where we probably get the most students if we're lucky. But because it's a survey, it's sometimes difficult to get in to topics with as much depth and care as you would like. And it um, so... So I've had two thoughts. One is to try to incorporate a topic or an essay um, each year, you know, like, um, okay, this year I'm really going to focus on how do I do this well, you know. So if I want to bring in Stephanie Camp's essay, for example, in conversation with Jennifer Morgan's earlier essay, which they're covering the same time period, but they're coming from slightly different perspectives in terms of how white men viewed in, uh, women of African descent. Um, so that's one thought I have. The other thought is that, uh, and I think I mentioned this earlier, is that maybe it's time just to teach a course on this material on its own. And I might fewer students that way, but we will have a deeper experience of really investigating these issues and understanding um, what they meant historically. I think it's important for us to distinguish between as much as we want to understand the legacies, we also want to be really clear about that, you know, what was then and what is now. And um, as we mentioned earlier, I think there's a lot, there are a lot of misconceptions about slavery, about enslaved people, and particularly about family life and, and intimate life. And um, I think the more that we can do to get this new material out, have these kinds of conversations and not just stop with these essays, but also invite students to go back and read some of the primary sources. I mean, I think, you know, the primary sources we do have are powerful. And so to have them engage with those sources and begin to interpret and think about how do people in the 19th century and even the 18th and 17th century talk about issues of gender, sexuality, the body differently than we do now, what does that mean? Um, and how, what are the similarities? Um, but recognizing again, that we're in a different time, um, time frame. Yeah, no. And, and, and those are all phenomenal illustrations and, and, you know, it's, it's really interesting. Like I always think about this question about applicability and, and, and I think that, you know, as someone who wants to be not only the best scholar, um, I can be, but also the best, you know, teacher I can be, you know, these particular questions are always ones that are, you know, 
directly, you know, in the front of my mind and, and how do I interpret sources and how do I think about, you know, my time in archival spaces. Um, and, and so I, I would just really, I just really appreciate the two of you and, um, and, uh, oh, and also I forgot to tell y'all too, I actually bought from my mother, your, uh, your other book, uh, Dr. Barry, I think you had mentioned it before that this is not your first time uh, collaborating with Dr. Uh, Harris because I remember I actually bought from my mother. My mother loves Savannah, and so I uh, I bought your uh, Slavery and Freedom in Savannah uh, um, a book a couple years ago as well, and uh, along with both of your uh, other most recently published books too. Um, because, you know, like I said, I, I love giving my mother uh, all of the books that I read because she's really uh, she, she she loves the, the study of history just as much as I do. So that's great. Yeah, that volume that's is really pretty cool. amazing. It's an amazing group of scholars in that volume. I think we had, what, 29 or 30 scholars who were part. Of yeah, 29. Um, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. we were really pleased with that volume. Very well. And, um, you know, in, in the short time that we have, um, are there any other new works in, 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 you know, in the process for both of you uh, separately, maybe, you know, something else uh, collaboratively? Well, it's, um, funny, I am finishing up a book, a co-authored book with Dr. Callie Gross from Rutgers called A Black Woman's History of the United States. And I'm really leaning on some of the work of this volume, um, the Sexuality and Slavery volume. And some of the methods, just to, to try to dig into the early history of Black women and who were on American soil, um, and then I'm doing a book on the myths of slavery following that. But that's more of a coffee table book. Um, but I I haven't said this to Leslie Harris in person, but I know that my my institution wants us to do a follow up uh, conference. Oh, you uh, have not said that to me in person. <laughs> Yes, I have not. So I'm telling you this on radio on our podcast here. <laughs> so they, they were very pleased. Um, you're going to get an invitation to do a book talk here at UT Austin okay. um, in the fall of next year um, for us to talk about sexuality and slavery. But one of the things that have, has come up since then is that, you know, what would it be like to have a follow-up conference, you know, in 20, I don't know, I don't even want to say the year because I don't know if I want to commit to that just yet. <laughs> But um, right. at some future date, because there's so much, there is so much new work. Um, see Raleigh Snorton's work, yes. um, you know, Jessica Marie Johnson's forthcoming work. Um, there's a number of scholars that are going to come out with work that I think is going to speak directly to some of the topics that we covered here, or even topics that we did not that get to cover. cover. Absolutely. Exactly. And so to have another sexuality and slavery conference mm-hmm. um, would also probably warrant another volume. And I know that the Institute for Historical Studies, who sponsored um, the workshop that we, the conference that we had here, and the Le- Leslie was on fellowship, they would love us to do a part two to this. So who knows? And I want to say one more thing, particularly because you mentioned C. Riley Norton, and I also want to mention Tavia Nyong'o, that this work on sexuality, historical work on sexuality and slavery is not just being done by quote-unquote historians. Um, We have uh, interdisciplinary scholars, again, and I think of uh, C. Riley uh, Norton and Tavia Nyong'o as more interdisciplinary and um, but very deeply historical, but bringing more theory in than historians are typically comfortable with. And I definitely want to dig into some of that. Um, 
bringing in uh, queer theory, uh, what is it, queer of color critique, which I still know don't know enough about, and a lot of other methodologies that were just beginning, uh, or I should say historians were just beginning to talk about, were always behind on these things. So I think it would be really interesting to do a follow-up. Um, in terms of what I have coming up, um, this month actually, or early next month, um, Slavery in the University Histories and Legacies, a conference, uh, that I did also in 2011, the edited volume is finally coming out as well. So I'm very pleased about that. And I remain amazed that slavery at universities is still a very relevant topic. Um, Trying to think if I have anything else coming. I think that's the major thing, and then I'm, I have a long-term project on New Orleans and Katrina that I'm, I'm hoping to finish in the next year or two. Well, thank you both, Dr. Uh, Leslie Harris and Dr. Dinah Ramey Berry, for for discussing sexuality and slavery with me today. You know, it has been um, definitely something that, uh, as as a work, I, I'm. I'm so, so happy um, that, that both of y'all, you know, took the time to uh, once again bless us with another uh, uh, collection of phenomenal essays and contributions together. And um, I hope that, you know, this is not the final time that y'all collaborate on something like this, because I would love to have both of y'all together uh, for another chat um, on the podcast and, um, you know, for your works that are coming out in the next, uh, in, in, in the future. Um, you know, just know that New Books in African-American Studies is a place where we hope that y'all uh, uh, can come back to. Because uh, I know that actually, uh, uh, Dr. Barry, your episode with... Uh, uh, with Mr. Uh, with uh, Dr. Stansel uh, was uh, one that I listened to a couple years ago, and it actually made me interested in wanting to become a, a podcast host. So uh, this is a, a more so of a thank you for for allowing me to 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 to, to be at the helm of this uh, this great uh, this great group of of, of interviewers. So uh, th- thank you so much. Thank you for your time, and thanks for thanks for highlighting our work yes, on your thanks show. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. And once again, folks, my name is Adam McNeil, and I'm a PhD student at the University of Delaware. And uh, once again, we've had the opportunity to chat with Dr. Dinah Ramey Berry, the Oliver H. Radke Regents Professor of History and African and African Diaspora Studies at the University of Texas at Austin, and also Dr. Leslie M. Harris, Professor of History at Northwestern University. And we have had them on to discuss their amazing book, published last year, cannot believe last year is only a couple days ago, which was actually published by our friends at the University of Georgia Press, entitled Sexuality and Slavery, Reclaiming Intimate Histories in the Americas. Once again, folks, hope you guys come back to the podcast and they subscribe. Over and out. is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.